Welcome to Adventures in Podacy, a reflective road trip towards our wit's end. Pop in your favorite cassette tapes and come along for the ride as we discuss faith, culture, and all the ways we were bullied growing up in evangelicalism. Seconds of silence. I'm sorry, I won't make bathroom jokes right before I press record. <laughs> Whatever, forget it. This All could right. be the Patreon like um blooper reel. That yeah. like. If you give ten cents a month, you get to hear all of this. Okay, let's just jump into it. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Adventures in Podacy, um, a road trip to our wit's end. And this is part two of The Most Modest Girls of the Party, which was the first episode that we recorded. And we realized it was far too long because we have far too much to say on this topic. Um, But yeah, last time we talked a little bit about uh, what purity culture was. We gave it some definitions. um, And we talked about kind of some uh, sources of purity culture that we grew up with or that the people who raised us grew up with because we definitely came in on the tail end of purity culture. Um, And then a lot of experience in our own lives, a lot of personal anecdotal stories about how we um, witnessed and dealt with purity culture growing up in youth groups or going to Christian colleges, um, things like that. So today we want to talk more about the consequences of purity culture as they manifest themselves um, in our lives to not our lives personally, but the lives of people who have gone through it today. Um, And then also talk about some, some practical solutions that we have felt helped us um, kind of address the issue in good faith. Um, But first Emily, or let's have Claire, Claire, do you want to go back and redefine for us purity culture based on definition we used last time? For sure. So we pulled from, uh, I believe the one that Emily specifically was the one that I pulled from David French's, um, his newsletter from a few months ago. So he, he defined it as purity culture, referring to the ab- elaborate set of extra biblical rituals and teachings that became popular in the 90s and were designed to build safeguards and strongholds of sexual purity in Christian communities. And those kinds of things included purity pledges, purity balls, purity rings, courtship instead of dating, contracts between um, like the families who are involved in the courtship um, and things like that. So I think that's the definition that we use. Cool. Um, awesome. So thanks, Claire, for that. Emily, do you want, how do you want to unpack this? <laughs> Gosh, I don't even know. I mean, there's definitely some consequences here that I feel the most... Um, I don't want to say like, I guess equipped to talk about whether that's based on personal experience or personal research. Um, But I don't know. I just feel like there's no good way to just like kind of weave all of this together. Um, I will say that 
Rachel Welcher and her book does that so well. And I think that's why her book is so good is it's not just a bunch of hot takes. She just weaves these topics together. So uh, seamlessly, honestly, um, I do not have that gift though. Okay. Um, Emily, you want to go ahead and introduce um, kind of the three points, the three overarching points we're going to talk about. Yeah. So um, I would say the first point that we're going to hit is um, just addressing some different myths about men and women's sexuality um, that have been perpetuated by purity culture. The second point is going to be um, addressing what I've kind of termed as the sexual prosperity gospel. I'm not sure if Welcher or Gregoire use that language. I don't remember it being in there, but I remember that light bulb going off in my head. If I they believe- did, Welcher definitely uses it. Okay, then great. Kaylin Beatty is the one who may have. Yeah, Kaylin Beatty is the first one to. She wrote an article on it. Um, okay, I just don't want to use a term and say it's in their book and it not be there. Yeah. Anyways. That, that term originated with Caitlin Beatty, but has been used by Gregor and um, Walter for clarification. Perfect. Um, so sexual prosperity gospel. Um, and then the third one is going to be um, the relationship between purity culture and um, abuse. Um, so, yeah, that, those are those three. Obviously, big trigger warning there. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would say definitely a trigger warning for that for that third um, point. But those are the three kind of categories of consequences that we're going to be discussing primarily in this episode. So. Well, what do we think the first myth associated with the sexuality of men and women? Like what, I guess what comes to mind is specifically myths about men because I mean, we talked uh, we talked a lot about in the last episode about women, how, basically how w- women are mistreated by purity culture, how we have been manipulated, deceived by it. Um, but I, men are some of the greatest victims as well. They, it's basically a whole culture that slams their character, their ability to exhibit the fruits of spirit, things like that. Mm. Yeah, I think the idea that men are naturally more sexual than women, which would lead to the assumption that men are more lustful than women, which is not, that's never what you hear. You hear things like men are more visual or, or women are just more beautiful than men and easier to look at. (laughs) I've heard women are more emotional. Women are more emotional. Men are more visual and physical. Or, you know, if you get into a relationship with a guy He's just going to be in it for the physical side, and you have you're the one who has to guard your heart because he just or and your and your body because he just wants like the physical release of a relationship. I I so based on uh, the this topic and this episode, I felt compelled naturally by the spirit to go to McKay's today or yesterday, sorry, and purchase my own copy of Every Man's Battle and also Every Woman's Battle. Because I'm interested in how they um, present men and women's sexuality. And obviously, every man's battle is men are struggling more with lust. Men are more visual. Men are more physical. Men struggle more with sex or they have more sexual physical desire than women do. Whereas in every woman's battle, one of the first sentences is um, the author saying, I've had an affair with five different men at the same time but she's referring to an emotional affair. Um, and her, she, she posits essentially that um, 
women's sexuality is more emotional and, and that women may not struggle with the, the physical temptation of sex, whether that's before marriage or extramarital sex, but it's more of an emotional thing. It's more of a romantic thing. And I was like, wow, that is interesting. Oh. Interesting. I, man, what, what am I feeling in my physical sexual desire then? I must just be really emotional. Mm. All of my emotions are not stored, actually. If here, they're just stored down there. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Um, yeah, that is, and I think that also carries with it another level of, and this is something that we all talked about last episode, personally, we've experienced, is when you do feel those natural biological reactions or desires. As women, we're told you're not really that, that much of a sexual being. You're, you're an emotional being. Um, and so when you experience those desires or feelings or reactions, it's like, well, what the heck is wrong with me? Like, mm-hmm. I'm either an incredible, I'm in, like incredibly in sin or I am like, there's some, like, there's something wrong with my biology. Yeah. And I think it confuses legitimate biological feelings with emotional feelings. And it, I mean, sex is a very emotional thing. I don't want to, underplay that by any means but at the same time i think healthy emotional a healthy emotional state is able to differentiate between what is an actual emotion and what is a physical desire because women don't just desire sex because they want to emotionally connect with their husband like sex feels good um i'm pretty sure the last time i checked there is a part of the female body that its only purpose is pleasure whereas men obviously have a penis that serves multiple purposes but anyways god just designed us that way so Hmm. i also think too this myth about women being like inherently emotional and not like having physical desire also puts into play and this is what i what i understand is in a lot of those like books that are big proponents of purity culture is like when you get married, you're not going to really want to have sex, but you're going to have to, um, mm, which is mm-hmm. so rapey, first of all. And second of all, like, why are why are you encouraging women to get married and just like lay down and take it? I just it just is absolutely disgusting to me. And and also, I think, too, I so many men that I meet or guys that I meet, they're not really men yet. Um Oh. Like I just notice how emotionally stunted they are by this myth, and how when they get into relationships with women, that woman is like their emotional like like she is who helps them understand their emotions. Like you have to do a lot of of labor for men if you become their close friend or their girlfriend. You are responsible for helping them like interpret, understand, deal with their emotions, and. Like, that's not helpful for anybody in society. It's just not. Hmm. I think there's also, it's also important to note that biologically, um, there is not much space for this idea. Like, obviously, biologically, men and women have differences. Um, and, and the way we experience sexuality is different. But the idea that men are visually stimulated and women aren't is just not necessarily true um there there are, i'm tr- i'm trying again not to be graphic here but like i'm i'm looking at an article right now again from Sheila 
how do you say your last name, Emily? Gregoire. Gregoire from um, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, which is a odd name for a blog, but it's a great blog. Um, she says, we often hear that men are visually stimulated and women aren't. And it's true in that in studies of sexual arousal, in general, different parts of men's brains light up versus women's brains. Um, in one study, researchers found that women tended to react more to contextual elements of erotic stimuli, like where she was looking, whereas men tended to look at body parts. And women preferred stimulation that involved the same people in different situations, whereas men wanted all new people. Um, however, they had the same response, sorry, to sexual stimuli. It wasn't like, oh, you know, the men were just always turned on, whatever happened. It was like both of them were turned on equal, like equally, but by different things. And it wasn't even necessarily like women were less visual. It was more of women prefer different visuals. And also too, you have to wonder, is that even biological or is that just like culturally conditioned in men? Because like society has primed their brains to just view women as objects. And she, yeah, she, she also addresses that. She says in general cultures where women are seen as valued and equal to men, women have higher sex drives. Imagine yeah, that. Which, I mean, if you look at the, it's very hard not to be crass, man. This is, <laughs> this is good for me. Um, when you look at the perceived libido of people in secular cultures, there's the, I think, you know, because we're in, um, 12th wave feminism or whatever. <laughs> There's this expectation that women have to have like a very high libido and are very sexual, very Carrie Bradshaw. Um, but there's the general like perception that women in secular cultures probably have a higher libido, whereas women in more conservative or religious cultures, especially fundamentalist Christian Christianity have a lower libido. And that could possibly be true because women are not seen as valued or equal to men in fundamentalist Christianity. Yeah, mm -hmm. which is a big proponent of purity culture. And Gregoire also makes the point in the um, in the episode of the Worthy podcast that she was on um, that uh, this is uh, from the study that she based her book, The Great Sex Rescue, on um, that when women felt more emotionally and relationally satisfied in their marriages and when they felt more seen and heard and like their opinions mattered in their marriages, their sex drive and their sexual satisfaction were higher which I think underscores the fact that there is such a strong emotional element at play in sex. But at the same time, it is not the only aspect at play for women when it comes to sex. And I think that's such an important distinction to make because when you tell women that you will never want to have sex, that you're always going to have, you know, a lower sex drive than your husband or whatever, then that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. And naturally you're going to feel like that. I mean, anyways, and I, and there is also legitimacy again to the fact that there are libido differences between a man and a woman from couple to couple, whatever. And there are different hormone cycles at play and the different and the different genders. But I mean, why, why, sh why shoot your marriage in the foot by saying I'm never gonna want to have sex, so I might as well just brace myself now for. Don't shoot your marriage in the crotch. <laughs> yeah, um, really. Yeah, don't kick it in the balls before it has a chance to to really flower. Uh, yeah. Do we want to move on? I like your light switch phenomenon that you have listed here, Emily. Do you want to unpack that more? 
Yeah, so the light switch phenomenon is mentioned by Rachel Welcher in her book, um, Talking Back to Purity Culture. And she basically describes um, this uh, phenomenon as when you're a single person um, dating, um, engaged, whatever, you are expected to abstain um, from all things sexual, blah, 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 blah. Um, and maintain that sense of purity. And then when you get married, like the second that you're married, all of a sudden this light switch is supposed to come on and you're supposed to all of a sudden know exactly. Um, it's not even about knowing, but you're all of a sudden supposed to be able to move into a sexual lifestyle that is fulfilling, that's mature, that is satisfying. And if you're, if you're, if you're a person that has abstained, um, whether that's your whole life or for a, a good chunk of your life, um, until marriage, that is just not like reality. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe for some people, you know, you are a virgin up until you're married and like your honeymoon is like everything everyone ever told you it would be. And that is super awesome. Like sex is just a natural part of your relationship and it came very easily and that's fantastic. But um, that's just not the reality for a lot of people, especially in a lot of conservative cultures where sex is not talked about. And the majority of people enter into their first sexual experiences with very little understanding of what sex will be like or even how to have sex in general. Um, so that's kind of what she describes as the light switch phenomenon. Um, Coupled with that phenomenon is just a lot of sexual dysfunction for both men and for women, um, which I think is important to note. But, yeah, that's kind of what she describes, the light switch phenomenon. Yeah, and I think tying that back into purity culture specifically, we all have that stereotype in our mind of that youth pastor who is like, <laughs> wait till y'all get married. Like, your mind's going to be absolutely blown by my like, wife. My wife is so hot. My wife is, and his wife is sitting there like, oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, that is, that's definitely something. And I, like, I, I wish I could say that I don't see a lot of people in my life who still kind of adhere to this belief. I think maybe even unconsciously, but we're taught that, you know, if you just save yourself for marriage, then when you finally, get to jump in, you know, feet first on your wedding night. It's going to be everything you like. God is going to give you just the absolute best experience. And a lot of people date and get engaged with that timeline in mind. Yeah. <laughs> and I, there's, there's not a level of like, I know so many people who are date, who date like rapid fire date either like multiple people and then in the relationship um, or they get engaged very quickly because they, and then I don't want to say, I know, you know, too much about their sex lives, but they get to the, they get to the sex life part and there's, they haven't built that level of intimacy or that level of like familiarity with each other in their regular lives. So when it comes to sex, it's like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> Gregoire talks about this on her blog a fair bit. I haven't read um, any of her books. Um, I plan to, um, my, my christianbook.com cart is full of books on this topic currently. Um, but she talks about this a lot and she's like, she's, I think she said basically if you expect people, particularly women to 
not only abstain from sex, but abstain from normal things in a relationship, like kissing, how do you expect them to have sex? Like, and be comfortable with that person that I, I could not imagine just like waiting, not even, and I'm not trying to diss anyone who wants to have like a first kiss wedding or doesn't want to like do certain things until they're engaged. That's totally fine. Um, but personally, I that think, expectation is like a blanket statement for everyone. Absolutely. And I could not, I, that the idea of dating someone, but not being even somewhat physically close to them, whether it's you're the Duggar girls and you only side hug and then you get married and you're expected to ha- just be in a fulfilling sexual relationship. I don't think I would be able to do that. <laughs> I just, I don't think that is something I could do. And, and, and I think just there's a proponent, there's just that perpetuated idea of like, as long it like this seems to make the heart grow fonder and makes you hornier. And it's just so upsetting because you hear like stories of people I, and I don't know if this is true, but there's a story of one of the darker girls who, you know, no kiss until the wedding. And then they find them like having sex in the bathroom. And like, that's like what people think is going to happen. And I just, it's, it's not, there's a learning curve and I, and that's just underplayed. Yeah. I, I agree entirely with what you're saying. Um, Claire, I think, I think that especially for women too, you're told like, yeah, I, I don't know how many women, if any, can relate to this, but I think as, you know, when you're younger, you get the like generic sex talk of like, this is how sex works. Like, you know, this is, this is kind of what happens and you're like scarred. And then as you get a little bit older, then you probably have the like more mature sex talk where like your mom or whoever tells you like the first time you ha- have sex, like it's going to be terrible. It's going to be so painful. Like, you know, they, they give you the, the, the talk that incites a lot of fear. Um, they're always like, there's going to be blood involved. Don't let that scare you. But like, you're already terrified and you are like, number one, like so ashamed that you're having this conversation. But um, yeah. And then you're terrified. To Look, have, I just for- want to stop and say that there's some of our friends are listening to this right now going, oh my God, what? Blood? <laughs> yeah. If, if you have not had that talk, I'm so sorry to be the first person to share that with you but if that is like as a woman your expectation for sex um whether that's realistic or not that number one frames sex really in a very frightening light um regardless of um you know your relationship with your partner what that's like but in addition um it really it really trains you to view sex as something that will be an experience that is not positive for you um So that was the first thing I wanted to point out. And the second thing is um, you both touched on the fact that some people will rush into marriage um, and and kind of rush this this sexual side and the more physical side of their relationship. And that, you know, there's a learning curve. But also if you have not um, developed a sense of comfort and safety in your physical relationship with your partner, Mm -hmm. sex is going to be scary because you don't know (laughs) – Number one, you've been told that sex is going to hurt, but is that just the nature of sex or is that because your partner doesn't know how to deal gently with you um, or they don't know how to hear your expression of pain or your expression of discomfort? Um, and and if you've grown up in a culture that, that, that says if you have sex before you're married or if you do X, Y, and Z before you're married, you should be ashamed, you will carry that shame into marriage no matter what. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and doing anything sexual, even if it's okay and even if it's safe, is gonna you're gonna feel ashamed. And I don't think that that's talked about enough. That Christians are walking into the bedroom like you know five or six hours after they've gotten married, like just absolutely laden with all of this baggage of fear, shame, um, and a myriad of other things. And like, you're not, no one is unpacking that. You're just kind of diving right in. Um, and so that creates a sexual experience that is very mixed for both men and women. And I think that we need to equip young couples to deal with that better um, than just like, hope you figure it out. Get some marriage counseling if you need it. I think I've I've seen been seeing this movement a lot of like not I don't want to say anti biblical counseling, but Christians who are saying biblical counseling is not the only kind of counseling you can attend as a Christian. And so more people more Christians should probably go to sex therapy. Like especially if you're walking with into that with any kind of baggage, whether it's abuse, whether it is just shame, like I, I think that's a very helpful thing. And I know a lot of people who probably should have gone before they got married. And uh, Well, yeah. So does that cover the first point? <laughs> uh, probably. I think so. Yeah. Um, nice. Nice guys. Okay. Um, only 30 minutes in. Only 30 minutes in. So let's move on to the to our next point here, which is, and this I think ties in. This ties in pretty closely to. I mean, I think we've already started talking about it. Essentially, the sexual prosperity gospel, right? Um, it it does directly tie into what we've been saying because it's the idea that if I follow these rules, um, if I you know am perfectly pure or like seventy five percent passing grade pure, then I'm going to have a great marriage and a great sex life when I'm done. Um, and we've unpacked kind of physically why that doesn't make any sense, but maybe we can unpack it from just a biblical perspective. Yeah. So from the biblical perspective, God doesn't owe you shit. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> we can edit that out. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just feel like it's simple. I don't know. It is, yes. but we'll unpack it more. I spent... Um, this semester going through one of Tim Keller's books that is not even nearly about this at all. Um, but it, it was, I'm talking about the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and it actually focused a lot on the elder brother who Jesus was using to show the Pharisees what they were actually like as ungrateful viewing relationships, viewing their relationship with the father as transactional. And so we talked a lot about that transactional relationship with God and how, like, if I do X good thing, then I will get this good thing. And you can tie that to, like, personally, I tie that to everything, whether it's if I am a really hard worker, I'll get this job. If I study really hard, I'll get this grade. If I, um, if I'm really, really intentional and about this, then I will have good friends. And none of those things have proved true in my life because God does not owe me these things. God God gives me himself and that's enough and he gives me other good things, but, um, he doesn't, he doesn't owe us these things. And, um, and I'm glad that I heard the sexual prosperity gospel like concept before I was in a relationship because I think it has tempered my future expectations a lot. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Personally. I also think it's important. Something to bring into the conversation is like marriage isn't the calling of a Christian. 
Mm-hmm. Like you are not called to be married. You are not called to be single. You are called to be holy. Um, and that, and I think the starting point for a lot of Christians, especially if you're young is, you know, I will someday be married and have a family. And if you want that desire, then I, I did it. I dearly hope that you get that. But the reality is that is not the truth for everyone. Or mm-hmm. even if it is the truth, you know, something could happen that changes that. Um, so even beyond like the idea of if I follow these rules, God will give me a great marriage and sex life. God may not give you a marriage. God may never give you a sex life. God may give you infertility. God may give you sexual dysfunction. God may paralyze you from the waist down. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you know, so, um, like just going all the way back to the very foundation, which is, you know, what our, our main goal in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not obviously he has given us so many things to enjoy outside not outside of himself, but in addition to himself, but, you know, it's him that we are to enjoy forever and, and not each other or not relationships or not marriages, not children, not jobs or careers. So, um, and I think a lot of people don't like to face that reality that they might be single for a very long time or forever, Mm -hmm. especially in the culture that we grew up in, which was Southern conservative culture where I'm 25 and I'm, I'm honestly an old maid because I'm not married. And my grandmother tells me all the time that she prays for me to meet someone. And I would rather her pray that I find a house or something like, I, I don't yeah. need to pray for me to find a husband. I don't need one. Um, a husband does not make me complete. So, yeah, I think that just, uh, that idea i first of all i want to point out we know a lot of single people who are significantly older than us or people who are single for significantly long periods of our of their lives and like for some of us like as long as we knew them until like recently and those were some of the people that i looked up to the most and Mm -hmm. still are and they have had very fulfilling lives and they have they just because they are not married and do not have children does not mean that they do not have families because the family of God and and we're recording this on Mother's Day so and I and I'm glad that people talk about that more is that like just though you may not be a nuclear family like the family of God exists and is very real um so but also I was thinking about this stupid Pinterest quote that I used to see all the time where it's like like chase after Jesus as like hard as you can and the man who like can keep up with you like that's your reward basically was kind of the gist of it and and now that I think of that, I'm like, that's so corny because yeah. like chase after Jesus and your reward is Jesus. Are you um, kidding me? Because you husband. mentioned that it's yeah, because you mentioned that it's Mother's Day. Um I'm looking I saw this tweet from Caitlin Schuss um today. Our and she, <laughs> um and she said, Happy Mother's Day to the moms of the very real family of the church, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, any woman who joins the church in raising children. We can idolize the nuclear family, but I'm not willing to give up on the promise that we belong to each other. Um and I I say that not to obviously demean the role of motherhood, biological motherhood, adoptive motherhood, foster motherhood, whatever, but to it, it brought to my mind, like we do idolize the nuclear family in a sense, not, and I, I can see Emily has some thoughts on this, but 
Um, I say that not saying that the nuclear family is bad or should not be encouraged, but I th- people do often place that as an idol above the pursuit of holiness, I believe. So, yeah, I, I mean like spiritual motherhood, I think is so underplayed, like regard, like not even just in the sense that like we talk so much more about literal motherhood because that's like, we should be talking about that. No doubt about it. But I think even in the church, like there is a really big emphasis on, you know, men need to have one-on-one relationships. We need men discipling men. Like, yes to that too. But like, I never hear like women should be discipling women. Like where are those one-on-one relationships between women? Um, And that's like also instructed in the Bible. It's like, like women, like teach younger women the Bible. Like, like, like. It's almost like the only verse I like in First uh, Timothy is the one where women can't teach and not women should be discipling other women. We only like, care about one verse in First Timothy. Right. And, and, and Paul even talks about the spiritual mothers he has. Like that idea of spiritual motherhood is a, a very real thing in the Bible. And I don't think we talk about that enough. I had a professor in college who um, – was one of the most educated people I've ever met. And she was not a mom. She was married, but she couldn't have children. And she said, you know, God didn't give me children, but he's given me so many spiritual children mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. like that. That's where that's that. That was my calling for my life. And she was fulfilled in that. And that's beautiful. I think too, um, to touch on, um, man, thought just went away it completely left me (laughs) talked about spiritual motherhood and forgot what i was gonna say um i also just wanted to point out who who were the spiritual mothers of timothy i can't remember his mother and his grandmother his his mother and his grandmother yeah like not only were they his biological mothers but they brought him up in the faith to the point where paul was like snaps for them you know yeah true and i like there are so many snaps for women in the bible too and i don't think it's just like (laughs) they they brought the best mac and cheese to the potluck. Like it's because it's because number one, there were a lot of rich women in the Bible that were like, I'm going to fund the literal church of Jesus Christ. And they did that. And they were like, thank you. And, and second, because I think there is this idea of spiritual womanhood and also because there were women and also because there were women in the Bible that knew the scriptures better than some men did. Um, anyways, I did remember what I was going to say, though. And what I was going to say was, I think, and also in terms of talking about um, marriage and good sex as our entitled right as Christians or as like our calling, so to speak, like, I I don't, I correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I remember reading in the Gospels that Jesus was a single man and died before he got married. And yes, the church is his bride, but please don't come for me with all of this weird consummation stuff mm-hmm. because like Jesus did not have fulfilling sex or marriage or children in his life on earth. And I like, what more do I need to say? Jesus has been abstinent for so long guys. He has been. And, and like, yes, if you marriage, can do it. So can you <laughs> marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. But like, I also, I don't want to, minimize but i also don't want to overemphasize like that's what it is it's a picture mm-hmm. um it's it, it's it's one it's one way of viewing um that relationship um between jesus and his church and that's a beautiful picture but at the same time you know 
Jesus did not have the gift of marriage of um, sex or even children um, mm-hmm. in his life on earth. And I think that we don't really talk about that as much. Yeah, I think what I think you had a really good point where we're not trying to minimize the role of marriage or the minimize minimize the role of the nuclear family. We're trying not to overemphasize it to the point where it's like the the role of singleness or the role of spiritual father or motherhood is diminished because it, it that's that's not good <laughs> yeah. or correct. I don't think, but yeah. Sam Albury talks a lot about singleness um, and he has a book called seven myths about singleness, which I think is um, worth everyone's read because you start single and you'll probably end single a little 50, 50 chance. Um, I also want to point out, I bought that book for you. So you're welcome. And I brought Welcher's book for you. Well, I asked for them both. Well, that's because I just read you at Christmas and I get you the right thing. So you're welcome. Um, But yeah, he talks about how, you know, I'm I'm just going to, like very broadly summarize what he says here, but um, he talks about how sexuality is like a gift to be stewarded. And just because we don't, even if you never become married and even if you, you know, remain single and celibate for the rest of your life, it's still something that you can steward well. And um, even children being a spiritual father or mother is part of stewarding your sexuality well as a celibate person. So I think that's an interesting point we could talk about at a later time. But <laughs> just to recap, um, we let's we can wrap up that second point there. Basically, like sexual prosperity gospel is something that is promoted heavily by purity culture. And that is, you know, at its foundation, you know, if you follow the rules, you'll get a husband or a wife and a happy marriage and a great sex life. And that is that's not true. <laughs> okay. um, so let's move on to, and we'll put a slap a big old trigger warning over this. Um, we talk about abuse and purity culture. Um, and I just wanted to also, I want to put a caveat here just because your church or your youth group or your school or your family subscribe to the notions of purity culture does not mean that you are abused. And we're not accusing anyone of that. Um, what we are probably going, what we're going to basically discuss is how purity culture can contribute to environments that allow abuse to grow or that um, protect or protect abusers. Is that fair? Maybe, yeah. maybe, the, maybe the first part more specifically, I think, yeah. I think it's definitely more about, um, I think the protecting of abusers is just straight up sin, but I definitely think purity culture can create environments where abuse can flourish. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Okay, who wants to attack? Who wants to beat that pinata? I'm not starting this one. I love beating pinatas. Um, so talking about abuse, I think we we've seen in recent. Well, if you keep up with Christian religious news at all, um, if you're on weird Christian Twitter, which I'm not, but I'm trying to break in. I just you're don't on the bird have, app. If you're on the bird app. Um, Wait, I don't know what that is. It's Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> oh, the, the Bird app. <laughs> I'm on that one. Okay. Um, God, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> we hear a lot about abuse, and um, especially recently, the everything with Josh Duggar coming out. Well, I mean that came out second time. time. <laughs> um, we're just finding out that now he gets off on children. Um, and apparently so, out on bail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he is out on bail. He is staying. Oh. I just want to precursor so this is interrupting. He is staying with a family that has children. The wife teaches piano. 
and had to move her piano lessons to another home. And she had to do that because she had to submit to her husband. Um, but anyways, um, so Josh Duggar, um, if I highly encourage you to go read the three articles that Nancy French wrote about Canacook, um, their use of NDAs and their protection of abusive leaders, um, and also how there is suspected just systemic abuse. There are probably more than one abusers. Um, is what I believe the third article emphasized. Yes. I, I feel like we can't make the tie between Canica and purity culture, though, very clearly. No, I'm, I'm not saying we're tying it to purity culture. I'm saying we're hearing a lot about it. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, but you you made the point that, uh, well, we'll get into that. So your moral superiority of women. So mm. women are more emotional. We're less physical. Therefore, we're better. Um, women are better for other reasons, um, but not because we're less physical and sexual. Um, and so I think there's this very common emphasis of abuse in that, or not abuse, in purity culture. Women contain the beast. That is women abused. contain the beast. And I don't know if it's an every man's battle, but Gregoire notes this several times in her interview with Elise Fitzpatrick um, and the guy from the Worthy Podcast. Sorry, man. Um, <laughs> huh? Isn't his name, uh, it's like Schumacher? Sh- Sh- Eric Schumacher. There we go. I knew it was Eric. <laughs> um, but she she comments that, I believe it's in every men's battle, you are, women are viewed as methadone for their husband's porn and sex addiction. Um, Amen. I believe that. And Stop. Don't. Take that back. Say I, I, right I now. do not believe that. You guys cannot see my face. I do not believe um, that. We have very strong feelings about pornography. I just want to put that out there. I'm literally wearing a shirt that says porn kills love. Um, porn destroys relationships, mental health, emotional and spiritual health, um, and is against God's design for us, period. Um, but yeah, women are viewed as things that can control men. Um, if he is lusting after other women, it's your responsibility to have sex with him. If you don't have sex with him, he will go watch porn. Um, and that's the message given to us. And it's absolutely destructive for marriage, I believe. Um, and Abby, do you want to talk about um, the Canica thing? Because I don't, I don't think I could explain it as quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm look, I looked at that quote that you said. This is, um, this is a quote from. I don't know if it's directly from Every Man's Battle, um, but it, it's associated with New Life Ministries. Um, be like a merciful vat. Once he tells you he's going cold turkey, I think about. That's porn. a reference to, to, to quitting porn. Yeah, I think it's about porn. Be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. Increase your availability to him sexually. Though this me may be difficult for you since your husband might have told you some things that repulse you. Since your sex drive as a woman is tied to relationship, you may feel betrayed just as if your husband has had an actual affair. Because just so you know, men's sex drive is not tied to relationships. They end with mercy. They say a lot of horrible things afterwards. Mercy is probably your best tack with accountability, of course. And so connecting that. And that's huge with abuse. Yeah. To being, to abuse is, do we not see the connection to marital rape? That's it. (laughs) in, In these circles, marital rape doesn't exist because you're supposed to give yourself to your husband. That's what it means. Um, 
I'm not going to pull out my Bible because it'll take me too long to find it. But I read this chapter in First Corinthians today. It was give yourself to each other. And that is that was a radical sexual ethic of the day um, was being in a committed covenantal relationship because people were all over the place having sex with all kinds of temple prostitutes. And the church was not supposed to be doing that. Um, and it was supposed to instead give each other, give themselves to each other in love. Um, and now we, purity culture has twisted that and said, you are supposed to have sex with your husband when he feels like it, and, but you'll never feel like it when he feels like it. And so therefore the concept of marital rape doesn't ex- essentially exist. And we can see the influence that's had on, you know, law in America. Um, I that's think a whole, can. That's, a, that's a long tangent. I mean, I yeah. agree, but yeah, but that's, yeah. that's the tie to abuse that I see. There's certainly more. Yeah, it definitely opens up the doorway for a lot of marital abuse, like you were saying, marital rape, because women are meant to be the there's the solution to the, every sexual problem their husband experiences. Um, um, it, it also has consequences outside of the marriage. Um, I think Josh and Anna Duggar are a great example. Josh was married off very soon after. Um, it, cause I don't, for those of you who are not familiar, he molested his sisters and a babysitter when he was a teenager. Yeah. Um, and he went through like a re rehab boot camp type thing. I don't really know. Um, and then he was married off to a woman who was essentially supposed to fix his problems. Um, back in early 2010s, um, he got caught on Ashley Madison, which was like the cheating, um, like sign up for to have an affair. It's like Tinder, Tinder for affairs. Tinder for affairs. Um, and he admitted to having a porn addiction. Um, and so I guess Anna didn't work that time. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speaking against Anna. I'm just speaking against this false argument that a woman can fix her husband's sexual problems. Um, and now we're at the point where he has not only consumed, but he has held on to um, images of child sexual abuse. Um, that the judge, the judge himself said, are in the top five worst he's ever seen. It was the investigator. I don't believe it was the judge. That makes um, more sense because the judge let him on bail. Yeah, I just want to point out that there were there have been continual systemic failures of the legal system in his case, including the sheriff who was a friend of the Duggars, who I believe the father. Josh's father brought him to it, and the sheriff, instead of basically saying this was a crime, um, which, granted, prosecuting minors is a whole other thing that I don't understand. I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be a paralegal or a lawyer here, um, but yeah. and not yet. And instead, they sent him off to this Christian counseling thing. Um, again, Christian counseling is not, or biblical counseling, not the solution for everything, everybody. It's not. Sometimes prison might be. <laughs> Um, yeah. So it does, it has consequences outside of marriage. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so for those, we, we touched on Canacook earlier and, um, for those of you who are not aware, Canacook is probably the largest Christian youth camp in the nation, I would say. Um, certainly one of the most recognizable names and, um, in 2000, um, I have the article pulled up. Um, I really encourage you to read it. It's by, uh, it's called, they aren't who you think they are. And there's been at least two more follow-up articles since, but, um, so one of the camp directors who started as a counselor and worked his way up until I think he was like considered the fa- a face of Canna Cook by 1999. Um, he was, um, 
accused by multiple parents and children of doing things like hot tub Bible studies, nude four wheeling, um, and then sexual acts with campers. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is going to be a direct quote from the article in 2003, four years after the first parental complaint about Newman's nudity, four years, um, White, who is the president of the camp, Joe White, and um, another individual, Cooper, wrote a corrective action memorandum that outlined a series of limits on Newman's activities. This is why he still worked at Canacook full time, including requiring him to end ministry activities by 10 p.m., prohibiting unannounced home visits, prohibiting private contact with kids absent parent permission, which all of these things like, duh, anyways, right? Surprise mm-hmm. visits at the house. Um, prohibiting sexual humor, prohibiting sleepovers, sleepovers with kids and prohibiting a wide range of nude and sexual conduct. Um, the plan also required Newman, who was the person being accused to spend considerable time with one of his supervisors. Oddly enough, these prohibit prohibitions were enacted only until Newman got married. At that point, the camp said it would reevaluate the restrictions. Years later, White characterized Newman's wife as the initial layer of accountability against abuse. And they have him on video saying that. And his abuse continued after he was married. And there are dozens and dozens of, uh, I think, boys, men now who have come forward and have reported everything from inappropriate conversations and touching to full on um, sexual assault, um, both before and after he was married. So that I think is a great example of how this idea that in purity culture, women are often seen as the, the civilizing touch or the sweet and innocent, um, like the beauty and the beast type thing. You know, when, when men marry women, they are changed. Um, the fair sex really does a number on them (laughs) and turns them around. Um, and, you know, that might be true um, in some sense in the way that, that can like, be true about picking up your socks, yeah, not about exactly. little boys. I'm yeah. sorry. That's yeah, that you you might be able to to teach a man to put the lid down or like um, whatever or put the seat down or clean a shower um, or use more than five in one <laughs> shampoo. <laughs> but you cannot unteach an abuser. You cannot unteach a pedophile. You cannot unteach a molester. And to put that burden on women is honestly, it, I can't, I can, it's very hard for me to fathom because thankfully, although we did grow up in purity culture, I don't think we grew up in a purity culture that would have run this far. Yeah. Maybe y'all would disagree, but no. we definitely I, grew up, we definitely grew up in places that would protect abusers. Um, But I, I would say that anyone that they would not be like the, it would not be the woman civilizing the man type brand. Yeah. Um, and I'd also want to point out that another flaw in this rhetoric is that it also assumes that women can't be abusers. Women also abuse. Women also mistreat. Um, women also do horrible things to boys and girls. And um, again, it's it's tied to this idea that women are not sexual or women um, are the civilized and better gender. And although the statistics are obviously like whether you're looking at them from a secular or a faith-based standpoint, men are far more likely to be the abusers and women are far more likely to be abused. Um, 
that's still, you know, you still want to leave a space for, for understanding that all genders are, can be culpable. Mm-hmm. And so I think it helps us broaden our view of what abuse is because it is not just being assaulted and having someone put their hands on you in a certain way or rape you. Um, and I'm sorry for being so graphic, but it is also being shown inappropriate materials, especially if you're a minor. And I, if, if our, especially with children, like if our definitions of abuse are not, because that's, that's included in, you know, a statement of preventing abuse for Canucook, for other camps, for the camp we work with, um, for schools. But if that is like not where we are as a church and as a people, um, of like, like this is what abuse is, then we will, you know, more, more women who are abusers will probably be able to continue to operate, um, Mm -hmm. like that because we're not expanding of what it means, what abuse looks like. I, um, you hear a lot of stories about younger boys who are abused by like female babysitters. Um, and they say that they don't even realize it's abuse because they're expected. They're old enough to know that they're supposed to be sexual and men are supposed to be sexual or the, the babysitter will even say, you know, I'm teaching you, let me show you. Um, and it's this additional layer. And I think this is also prevalent, um, in secular culture as well. The idea that, that men are, are meant to be hypersexual, it just doesn't leave any room for a child to understand or a teenager to understand that they've been subject to abuse. Like just the person who showed them that porn or the person who um, encouraged them to do the sexual act with them or to watch someone else do it. That is abuse. (laughs) I mean, if you look at the news, it's not called statutory rape and it's a female teacher and it's a male student. It's Mm -hmm. called a teacher student relationship. But when it's a male teacher, and a female student, it's called pedophilia. It's called statutory rape. Rightly um, so. Rightly so. Like, yeah. Both both of those things are this are both are equally wrong and twisted. So I think that's another way that purity culture is 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 can be connected to abuse because so much of purity culture wants to downplay. Um, sexual desire, sexual, um, acts, um, and wants to, to talk about them in a way that feels very safe and, and save that for the correct time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're not talking, if we're not making kids aware of their sexuality as they're becoming aware of it or mm-hmm. before then, they're not going to have the language or tools to be able to identify if they're, um, experiencing abuse or, um, you know, if they, if, if, yeah, they, they need to understand their sexuality before someone else gets to them first. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's like, I like that feels terrible to say. Um, but at the same time, that's the reality. Like, um, they, they talk about that. Rachel talks about this in her book at the very end and just offers some like really practical solutions that I think are so powerful and so necessary for parents. Um, and it's as simple as like we should use anatomically correct language with our kids because that's mm-hmm. what's recognized in the court of law. Mm. So if your kid is molested and they don't have, number one, the language to verbalize that to their parent it's probably going to occur for longer than it should. Obviously it should never have occurred in the first place, but it's going to, it's going to, it's not going to be recognized as quickly. I also, just before you continue, I just want to note that that's, that's even like, that's not even talking necessarily about, 
that's not something that's not age appropriate. And that's not Correct. something that's, that's could, that has to be uncomfortable. That's a very easy, like first mark to meet with your kids yes. when you're beginning to, to like, well, we're going to use real words to describe these parts of your body. And we're going to yeah. let you know that those parts are only for you to touch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in purity culture, there is a sense that sexuality is simple and wrong until it happens in marriage. And, and, and you are not a sexual being only when you get married, you're a sexual being your entire life. Mm. And we have to, and we have to recognize that, um, that fact and, and, and teach that to our children because mm. that is, that, that's a safeguard against the, the, the threat um, of this world. And yeah. if, I think that's so important. If you don't teach your children about sex, about what sexuality means outside of marriage or even and into puberty, um, especially someone else will teach them you're doing your children a great disservice because you are like just laying the ground. You're not you're calling the it their wee wee in their flower pot. Like, yeah. The flower what is that? Pot? What is that? that? I don't one. know her. <laughs> I certainly don't. I think I just made it up. <laughs> I don't know. We need to it's change that to cactus. Be. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Gosh. Should I cut that? <laughs> Absolutely no. not. <laughs> No. Yeah, I mean, no. I think there's so much value in just like if we if we can I don't want to say we're not normalizing sex, but we need to normalize sexuality. And we need mm-hmm. to incorporate I think and I think too the fact that, you know, I hear so much talk even in the church today like our sexual identity is not our only identity. So true. We are not defined entirely by our sexuality, but our sexuality is a huge part of what it what it means to be human and to neglect that is to set yourself up to feel a lot of shame and to potentially experience abuse. And again, I feel like I'm always the one who's like footnote or a caveat or just popping in to remind everyone. Um, we are not saying that if you grew up in purity culture that you were abused or that, that, mm-hmm. that place was necessarily cult- cultivating a, um, culture of abuse because you can be very deeply embedded in purity culture and not in a culture of abuse, but you can also be completely not in purity culture and deeply embedded in a culture of abuse. Like, yeah. I don't know if you guys know who Harvey Weinstein is, <laughs> but great example right there of some place that's so far away from purity culture, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, I think we've hit all three of those points. Um, Let's move into um, some solutions that we kind of have found are helpful. I think we've already touched on that on these quite a bit. So we ta- we've already talked about um, a better theology of the body and science. And I think those are two very helpful things to utilize when trying to fight the mindset of purity culture. So having a theology of your body that's not shame-based not shaming kids for having questions, not shaming kids for having a sexuality as they get older. I'm trying not to sexualize children, um, but, Mm -hmm. um, and also science and anatomy and like understanding like how your body works and having Mm -hmm. like girls and boys understand what's going to happen to them as they change, not just what happens to them in terms of how they look, but how their bodies function and how they're going to feel like that's very important because that is a, that's a quick combat to, shame and your moment of discomfort as a parent or as whatever your role is in this child's life 
will be far eclipsed by your child's confidence as they grow into um, a, a youth, in my opinion. But yeah, definitely having a theology of a theology that sees bodies as temples, um, as gifts, and as things to be honored, and things that Jesus cares about. Yeah. I think that's a huge, a huge solution. Um, anyone want to take one of the other points? Yeah, I'll talk about. Um, I think we should dress codes. That makes sense. Is a huge thing. We talked about that a lot in the last episode. Um, of being the most modest girl at the party. I don't think I've ever been accused of being the most modest girl at the party. Um, I like to think that that's not the case, but totally kidding. Um, yeah. Uh, context matters. You were in a pool wearing a t-shirt and shorts. That's like not the right context. You know, like it made sense because you didn't have a swimsuit, but like applauding a girl for wearing something that is not like uh, for wearing, like imagine if you wore a dress into the pool. That doesn't make any sense. So I, context I also, I've been thinking important. about that. And like, I also want to note that if you want to wear that. Oh yeah. If you, if you want to cover your body more, then absolutely go for it. Like that is not yeah. something we're shaming. Like if you have scars or you have, or you're just standard of modesty or your standard of what you're comfortable with is much higher than, then go for it. Absolutely. That's not something yeah. we're shaming for. But if you, if you feel like this is unnecessary, why do I have to wear this? And it doesn't fit the context of the situation, then yeah, you can, I feel like you have that freedom to revisit. Absolutely. I, I am not encouraging every girl to throw on a pair of like, cutoffs and thigh highs and pasties and like be like this is modesty everybody um freedom in christ his blood covered <laughs> all um taking into consideration the culture you know the culture for our like as americans is different than what it is obviously as like if you were visiting like a primarily muslim country can i, um, plug, can I plug a personal anecdote as well please plug Having been to several beaches in Europe at this point and seeing a lot of nude or nearly nude people um, and seeing just how people just don't have a problem with it, mm-hmm. like context is so important. There are places where complete like female topless is completely accepted. It's fine. And it's actually considered shameful for men to like look below the neck at women who are swimming. I love that. Yeah, but then again, if you're in more conservative countries in South Asia and the Middle East, mm-hmm. like totally different, like completely yeah. different standard. Yeah, absolutely. So taking consideration to culture um, and also comfort, like you and I'm not even, I don't know, physical comfort, it matters. That's why I like leggings and sweatpants, I'm wearing leggings right now, but, and or yoga pants, not sweatpants. I think sweatpants are probably considered modest everywhere. Um, but also mental and emotional comfort so when i was a young student in high school i remember my pastor of the church i grew up in that i would later leave mentioning that he believed the from the pulpit from the pulpit um he believed that the young women of the church didn't dress very modestly and there was very few of us like young women um because there was not a large youth base there and I just remember sitting there burning with shame and anger that this man who, first of all, had no role in my life. He baptized me, but he did not know who I was. He didn't know what I loved. He didn't know what I cared about. And how dare he comment on something that I wore to church. Um, so there was that. And also humility. I think um, in the Worthy podcast that she was interviewed on, Gulwar commented, and this is something that I love to say, is when it talks about modesty in the Bible, it talks about not flaunting your wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I always go back to like, you know, like 2016 to 2018 when flex culture with guys was like huge. And like it meant a lot to be wearing Supreme. And I'm just like, that's not modest. Hey, that's just as immodest as me walking around topless, uh, you know, in the Bible Belt. <laughs> I don't um, know if that's true, but <laughs> I mean, maybe we could say spaghetti straps or something. But like, that's true. You topless also- in the Bible Belt is just not good. Yeah, I would be admitted to the mental hospital. Um, I just also want to point out, I have never that is been not appropriate for the culture outdoor. or the content in the Bible. More comfort, um, comfort. anyone's humility, comfort. Humility, it, like dressing immodestly is not just about showing your skin. It's about in the Bible, it was talking about showing your wealth. Um, and so, I think that's a really important thing to note because you can like. At the church I am attending currently, it's a pretty wealthy part of town of Knoxville, and um, people dress pretty well. I see some, I see some designer there, and I'm not saying this is immodest, but if that is like, if they're focusing on like covering their shoulders and like covering their ankles, which this isn't what they do, but they're also making sure they're wearing like a Louis bag and like a Gucci watch, making sure maybe yeah, not making, just like. Like, I have to leave the house yeah. with these yeah. artifacts of wealth on my person. Making sure that that is shown. And then there's also the flip note, or the flip note, the flip side of that, which is <laughs> I am making my modesty of wearing Goodwill full-length denim dresses. Um, I'm I making that my work right. denim dress, and I feel attacked. Uh, that was about you, actually. Um but they're making that their workspace righteousness. So that is not humble either. So I am so modest because I wear denim yeah. skirts and yeah. Yeah. So it's just important to consider like what modesty actually is and how it's not just about covering your skin. And Gregoire says in the podcast, um, she was like, you just need to stop focusing on rules and start viewing people with like dignity. And, mm. and I think that's just what a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians experience um, when they're faced with a dress code that shames. And focuses on um, girls' responsibility to keep boys from lusting is like I'm just not even viewed as a person with like dignity. I'm not even viewed as a child of God here. I'm viewed as an object. I'm viewed as a like slab of meat on the counter for these 15 year old boys to devour. If I don't prevent myself from being seasoned and marinated, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Emily, what about what about um, you? Want to hit one of these other points? Um, yes, I do. Um, I accidentally closed my iPad with our document, so I have to open it back up. Um, Um, and we're back here. Um, yeah, I think too, to kind of dovetail what Claire said, um, language that focuses less on shame and both the topic of sexuality and modesty and abuse, like all of those things I think are so interconnected. And if we can reframe, the language and the conversations that we're having to put accountability where it belongs um, and to recognize that. Um, and, and like Claire said, to kind of go back to that, that, that issue of value um, and to put that where it belongs, I think is, is huge and reframing purity culture because, you know, I think we mentioned this in the previous episode that purity culture kind of came out of this, uh, uh, insurgence of fear around, um, like a lot of, um, 
what is the word I'm looking for? Um, the sexual revolution. It was a response to the sexual revolution. And yes, but also like at that time, like HIV was, of, yeah, was 70, becoming 80s. correct. HIV was a big issue. Uh, teenage pregnancy is what I was looking for. Was oh, I also, was yeah, I was looking MTV, for teen pregnancy. Mike, Michael Jackson's crotch grab, all those things. <laughs> But, but like, this is a direct quote. Purity culture is a response to Michael Jackson's crotch grab. That was, the, yeah, the tagline for this um, episode. Anyways, but and and that and that that normalization of sexuality that was happening, I think, a lot in the eighties came from the sexual revolution naturally. Um, and so, purity culture kind of came in as this uh, attempt at at buffering um, that those issues. And I totally recognize that. But so often when we react in fear, um, we end up heaping a lot of shame onto um, whatever it is that, you know, on the people that we're trying to protect. Yeah. Um, And that's just like not helpful. A message in purity culture is that abstinence before marriage is a good thing. Sex belongs in marriage. That is true. And there is nothing wrong with that. But to tack on all of these extra biblical requirements and to shame people for failing to meet them is wrong. So if we can reframe our language to use more honoring language, I think that we'll be moving in a really positive direction. As yeah, opposed, stop so calling women down. Not say like girls don't dress slutty. Mm-hmm. Um, girls don't. I, I don't even know, but like, yeah, don't, block. don't be, yeah, that's a big shaming shame word is to call some, a person, a stumbling block mm-hmm. to literally compare someone to something that is being tripped over. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, even like, I think sometimes we use like some of these, like some of these uh, phrases as means of like building women up. Like, you know, women are just so, I, it kind of ties back into this idea of like women are morally and sexually superior, but um, like you're just so attractive and like it just boys can't help it. Like that is still it's demeaning. so demeaning to men yeah. as well. Like men here exactly. all the time. Boys keep your hands to yourself. Boys like yeah. keep your and, and yeah, obviously guys keep your hands to yourself. But like if that's the only message that they're hearing, what are they thinking about? who they are as individuals and who they are yeah. as people who have, you know, certain levels of self-control. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's what I'm kind of meant when I said at the beginning about like not being able to bear the fruits of the spirit, you are stunting boy spiritual growth. If you say things like that, I'm like, consistently. And, yeah, consistently. If they're hearing it every now and then hopefully you're, you have created an environment as a parent or as a leader in their life or a mentor or whatever that, you know, insulates them from that negative lie because you, your life likely revolves around, you know, refuting the lies of the world. So you shouldn't be planting more lies in their life that they can't control. They, that they can't exhibit the fruit of the spirit of self-control or faithfulness to their wife or ex or kindness Mm -hmm. to women, whether they are dressed modestly or not. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I'll, I'll wrap up this rant with just the last couple of things that we think of as we might or might be good solutions um, for com- combating a mindset of purity culture are personal accountability and also I'd add community like mm-hmm. um, if you have these if you really feel like you cannot operate outside of the boundaries of purity culture like if you feel like you cannot look at a woman 
not lustfully if she's not dressed with her shorts two inches above her knee and her shoulders covered. Um, I hate to break it to you, but you have a level of person accountability that you need to address here. And you Mm -hmm. need to take a look at yourself and how you view women. And same thing for girls. If you look at guys and you can't control yourself unless they're, um, unless they're doing X, Y, and Z with the way they interact with you Mm -hmm. um, and the way they form relationships with you, then you need to, you know, take a step back and hold yourself to a level of personal accountability and have your community hold you to that level as well. Because Mm -hmm. we are not meant to operate within the boundaries of this extra biblical culture that has been imposed on us, right? The boundaries have not fallen in good places (laughs) (laughs) in that sense. Like, well, they have, but we're living outside of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible tells us that our bodies are meant to be holy, like God is holy. We are meant to be holy, like God is holy. And our sexuality is a gift for that. And keep telling yourself that, even when you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And surround yourself with people who tell you that. Um, because only then will you begin to experience a real radical change in the way you view yourself and your desires and the way you view the people around you. Mm. Um, and the last point we have on here is therapy. That will always just- be the last point of every episode. Therapy. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, if you cannot afford therapy, um, that's, that's, I, I, that's one thing I was thinking of is like therapy is expensive, um, yeah. especially in yeah. our crappy, um, state of healthcare in the States. But, um, if your church, even if your church offers, I know Claire kind of is harping on like biblical counseling is like a no go. <laughs> um, but there are churches that have really, um, well-trained um, counselors who can help you. And if you can find mm-hmm. a church, become a member and seek help that way. Some churches, um, I know, uh, I think the one Claire attended for a while will even go half and half with you or yeah. help pay for your therapy costs if they if the issue is deemed like difficult enough. So if you've experienced abuse under purity culture or if you are experiencing sexual dysfunction mm-hmm. because of the lies purity culture told you, seek help, like yeah. seek a community and like seek help in the scripture, but also seek professional help and doctors because that's God gave us those. Yeah. God gave those people wisdom. Um, and God has given us the science of the science and the art of psychology. And so we should utilize it. And also, I don't know if we have any pastors listening to this or people who are heavily involved in their church. Um, I kind of almost hope we don't, but also I hope we do because if you can crowdfund that for members of your church, you should, um, that's, that was one of the reasons I was drawn to the church I went to at the time. Um, and I didn't utilize that resource because I didn't need to at the time, but that's how I knew that they actually cared about people and, and their mental and, and yeah. spiritual health was they wanted to pay for your therapy or go half and half with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, I think we just solved this problem um, totally and completely. <laughs> we should do world hunger next. Yeah. Or the whales. But if you listen this far, mad respect for you. And we would love to hear um, in our respective inboxes, uh, what is your worst experience purity culture? What is the worst um, story that you were told or lie that you were told? Or what topic should we talk about next? Right. What do you want to hear the brown girls rant about? What do you want to go on a road trip with us to talk about? Um, Yeah. But we appreciate your time and your ears and your heart. And remember, we do this for the love of the church and the life of the world. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye.